Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome back. I would like to apologize to everyone for the delay in getting episodes out to you guys. I was on a work trip for the last couple of weeks. The episode cadence should be returning to normal from here on out. This week, we are going to stay in the 20th century, a time of little safety regulation and immense worker abuse. Today, we are going to discuss the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which is the deadliest industrial accident to occur in the city of New York, one of the deadliest accidents to occur in the United States as a whole. Before we jump in, as is the norm here, I'm going to jump to a quick Patreon ad. Do you want to help the show continue to grow? Well, have you considered joining the Destination Disaster Patreon page? If you choose to join, no matter which level, you'll gain access to an exclusive group where you can chat with other members, gain access to merchandise discounts, and a monthly AMA where we can all gather and discuss different topics. The Community Responder tier, or the Entry Level tier, is $5 per month. Here, you'll gain access to the private Patreon community, monthly AMAs, a Patreon shoutout, and an exclusive sticker once you complete your first month's billing cycle. The next tier is the Section Chief, or $10 tier. Here, you'll gain access to all previous tier benefits, and will also gain a 20% discount on merch, four free Destination Disaster stickers, and an exclusive coffee mug once you complete your first month's billing cycle. And finally, we have the Emergency Management Director, or $20 tier. Here, you'll gain all benefits from the previous two tiers. You'll also receive an exclusive Destination Disaster merchandise bundle, hand-selected by myself, and a long sleeve shirt that is not available on the show's store page. Please know that there is no obligation and you can choose to end your support after a month if you choose to do so. Any amount of support is greatly appreciated. Please know that there is also a 7 day free trial where you can just gain access to the community to see if this is something that you want to support. Please consider joining today.
As we've discussed in previous episodes, workplace safety and worker health has not always been a priority here in the United States, especially in the early 20th century when factories began to dot the landscape during the Industrial Revolution. Prior to the 1960s, very few trade unions and laws existed that aimed to protect overall worker health, essentially allowing employers to set any work hours and dictate break times. The post-Civil War era saw America transformed from a largely rural, agricultural society to an urban society in which an industrial workforce was employed in the growing number of factories, mills, and mines. In the post-war period, legal historian Robert Steinfeld writes, The abolition of slavery gave way to another form of legal regulation that offered workers greater formal autonomy, but continued indirectly to place them at the disposal of those who owned productive assets. The evolution of a labor system in which workers and owners bargained for wages in exchange for labor superficially papered over the ongoing inequalities that were intrinsic to the new industrial economy. For those who worked in the factories, life was brutal, with most companies dictating the work hours. It was generally understood that if you held a factory or general labor job during the early 20th century, your life was one of struggle. Unskilled workers fared relatively poorly in the new nation. About 40% of the workers in the cities were laborers and seamstresses in clothing factories. The group received low wages and often lived in dismal circumstances. Skilled workers, such as craftsmen, artisans, and mechanics, received up to double the pay of the unskilled. They tended to their own homes and were often seen as solid citizens of their communities. As early as the 1830s, carpenters, printers, shoemakers, and others had begun to organize themselves into journeymen's societies and benevolent associations. Although they did not consider themselves unionized, they did act in concert. They demanded minimum wages and shorter working hours. Working days usually ran from dawn to dusk, which meant that they were much longer in summer than in winter. And on the other end of the spectrum, in the unskilled labor force, those who worked in factories tended to work 50-plus hours per week, seven days a week, earning pennies on the dollar when compared to their skilled counterparts. Following the rapid industrialization that occurred in post-Civil War America, workplace health and safety were non-existent, most times even a risk to worker health. In an article by Encyclopedia.com, it chronicles that while rapid advancement was necessary for our rapidly growing population, most times factories and the machines that were operating within weren't developed for worker safety, but maximizing profits and production. During the late 19th century, the U.S. economy underwent a spectacular increase in industrial growth. Abundant resources, an expanding labor force, government policy, and skilled entrepreneurs facilitated the shift to large-scale production of manufactured goods. For many U.S. citizens, industrialization resulted in an unprecedented prosperity, but others did not benefit as greatly from the process. The expansion of manufacturing created a need for large numbers of factory workers. Although the average standard of living for workers increased steadily through the last decades of the 19th century, many workers struggled to make ends meet. At the turn of the century, it took an annual income of at least $600 to live comfortably, but the average worker made between four to 500 per year. Poverty was the norm for those who busted their asses every day to provide for their families, many of whom immigrated to this country to seek out the quote-unquote American dream. No greater example of workplace abuse was that of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. The factory occupied three floors of the Ash Building in the northwest corner of Green Street in Greenwich Village. Owned by Mac Blank and Isaac Harris, 
historic records show that approximately 500 staff of primarily Italian and Jewish descent were employed at this factory. The factory normally employed about 500 workers, mostly young Italian and Jewish immigrant women and children, who worked 9 hours per day on weekdays, plus 7 hours on Saturdays. Earnings for their 52 hours of work were between $7 and $12 per week, the equivalent to $191 to $327 a week in 2018 currency, or $3.67 to $6.29 per hour. Workers here were forced into exceptionally rough conditions, with exits being locked at most times due to managers wanting to prevent unauthorized breaks. Surprisingly, this was commonplace in early 20th century factories in order to prioritize work over staff health. The working conditions were harsh, and there were no protections when it came to needing a sick day or encountering an injury on the job. If you didn't show up, you were simply replaced. During this time, you were expendable and replaced. Factory conditions were so poor, and in some cases, deplorable. Lack of effective government regulation led to unsafe and unhealthy work sites. In the late 19th century, more industrial accidents occurred in the United States than in any other industrial country. Rarely did an employer offer payment if a worker was hurt or killed on the job. As industries consolidated at the turn of the century, factories grew larger and more dangerous. By 1900, industrial accidents killed 35,000 workers per year and maimed 500,000 others, and the numbers continued to rise. The general public became concerned with industrial accidents only when scores of workers were killed in a single widely reported incident, such as the mini coal mine explosions or the tragic Triangle Shirtwaist Company fire in 1911. In one year alone, 195 workers in steel and iron mills were killed in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. As a quick comparison, in 2022, OSHA reported 5,486 worker fatalities across all industries. The scarier part? Women and children were subjected to the very same working conditions, albeit earning much lower wages. The late 19th to early 20th century saw the early formations of workers' unions organizing for safe working conditions, benefits, and protections against the corporations that sought to drain the life from their expendable workforce. As if the abysmal conditions in these factories weren't demeaning enough, physical discipline was normal and commonplace in most of these factory settings as well. In addition to cutting wages and hours, employers often used physical means to discipline their workers. Long hours caused extreme exhaustion, and workers frequently fell asleep on the job. While this was a major hazard for those working with heavy machinery, it also subjected them to physical discipline from employers and managers. Such discipline included beating the employees with leather straps, hanging iron weights to workers' necks, and dousing them in water to keep them awake. These punishments were invariably worse when directed at children, as children were more susceptible to beatings, injuries, and sleep deprivation. During the Industrial Revolution, many children were beaten to death in factories by supervisors and employers as punishment and examples set for other children. Once again, welcome to the quote-unquote American Dream. As I stated at the beginning of this episode, the disaster that we are discussing today is the deadliest industrial disaster to have occurred in the United States. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire occurred in Greenwich Village in Manhattan in New York City on March 25, 1911. This fire ripped through the textile factory known at the time as the Triangle Waste Company, which occupied the 8th through 10th floors of the Ash Building, which is now known as the Brown Building. Surprisingly enough, this building still stands today, 
located at 2329 Washington Place, near Washington Square Park, on the New York University campus. At approximately 4.40 p.m., a fire erupted in a scrap bin in a corner of the 8th floor, quickly spreading through the highly flammable contents of the garment factory. While smoking was banned in the factory, many of the employees indeed smoked. Although smoking was banned in the factory, cutters were known to sneak cigarettes, exhaling the smoke through their lapels to avoid detection. A New York Times article suggested that the fire had been started by the engines running the sewing machines. A series of articles in Collier's noted a pattern of arson among certain sectors of the garment industry whenever their particular product fell out of fashion or had excess inventory in order to collect insurance. The Insurance Monitor, a leading industry journal, observed that shirtwaists had recently fallen out of fashion and that insurance for manufacturers of them was fairly saturated with moral hazard. Although Blank and Harris were known for having had four previous suspicious fires at their companies, arson was not suspected in this case. In the chaos of the fire spreading, employees were unable to escape due to the locked exits, forcing many to either burn to death or jump from the building. As fire crews arrived on scene, it was discovered that their ladders were unable to reach the 10th floor to conduct rescue operations and fight the blaze. Although the floor had a number of exits, including two freight elevators, a fire escape, and stairways down to Green Street in Washington Place, flames prevented the workers from descending the Green Street stairway, and the door to the Washington Place stairway had been locked to prevent theft by the workers. The locked doors allowed the managers to check the women's purses. Various historians have also ascribed the exit doors being locked to managements wanting to keep out union organizers due to management's anti-union bias. The foreman who held the stairway door key had already escaped by another route. Dozens of employees escaped the fire by going up the Green Street stairway to the roof. Other survivors were able to jam themselves into the elevators while they continued to operate. Terrified employees crowded onto the single exterior fire escape, which city officials had allowed Ash to erect instead of the required third staircase, a flimsy and poorly anchored iron structure that may have broken before the fire. It soon twisted and collapsed from the heat and overload, spilling about 20 victims nearly 100 feet or 30 meters to their deaths on the concrete pavement below. The remainder waited until smoke and fire overcame them. Following the blaze, the total death toll ended up totaling 146, 123 of whom were women and girls and 23 men. The main causes of death were smoke inhalation and the impact of those jumping or falling. Bodies of the victims were taken to Charity's Pier, also known as Misery Lane, located at 26th Street in the East River for identification by friends and relatives. Victims were interred in 16 different cemeteries. 22 victims of the fire were buried by the Hebrew Free Burial Association in a special section at the Mount Richard Cemetery. In some instances, their tombstones refer to the fire. Six victims remained unidentified until Michael Hirsch, a historian, completed four years of researching newspaper articles and other sources for missing persons and was able to identify each of them by name. Those six victims were buried together in the Cemetery of the Evergreens in Brooklyn. Originally interred elsewhere on the grounds, the remains now lie beneath a monument to the tragedy, a large marble slab featuring a kneeling woman. In the aftermath of the fire, the two owners of the company were indicted on charges of first and second degree manslaughter. The counsel for the owners tried to claim victims of the fire memorized their statements, trying to destroy their credibility and protect the reputation of the company. However, following subsequent investigations, the prosecutors were able to prove that the two owners were aware of the locked emergency exits, preventing an ease of escape for those trapped. 
the investigation found that the locks were intended to be locked during working hours based on findings from the fire, but the defense stressed that the prosecution failed to prove that the owners knew that. The jury acquitted the two men of first and second degree manslaughter, but were found liable of wrongful death during a subsequent civil suit in 1913 in which plaintiffs were awarded compensation of the amount of $75 per deceased victim. The insurance company paid Blinken Harris about $60,000 more than the reported losses, or about $400 per casualty. As a result of this accident, advancements were indeed made to create safer working conditions through both government regulations and unions organizing. One such union was the prominent International Ladies Garment Workers Union, or the ILGWU. Pressure from the National Women's Trade Unions continued to mount against the city of New York to enact safety measures and to provide some sort of government oversight. Composed mainly of middle and upper class women, it sought alliance with working class women and worked with them to promote labor organizing. At the time, union leaders like Samuel Gompers of the American Federation of Labor were suspicious of alliances with the middle class. They thought that the solution to workers' problems rested solely in union organizing and in the independence of organized workers from other classes. Yet women leaders like the ILGWU's Rose Schneiderman and Pauline Newman advocated for both union organizing and legislative reforms and worked tirelessly with the NWTUL to push for legislative reform. After the fire, the NWTUL was able to respond immediately in an organized fashion to channel the outrage into action. They sent out a questionnaire about factory working conditions through local newspapers and collected hundreds of responses from factory workers. They were thus able to document the extremely unsafe conditions in which many were forced to work. Armed with this evidence, the NWTUL drew from their social connections and spearheaded the formation of the Citizens Committee for Public Safety, composed of 25 prominent citizens. In the end, the aldermen in the city caved to the pressure and established the Bureau of Fire Prevention. In addition to the establishment of the Bureau of Fire Prevention, the New York City Commissioner began factory inspections and concluded that hundreds of the city's factories were unsafe. But it also did not stop there. The fire had overwhelmed the city with grief that many citizens, men and women, were inspired to take action as well. Nearly 400,000 people gathered for the mass funeral of the victims, completely filling the streets of New York. Accounts of the funeral march describe how there was no music, nor any sound at all. The marchers wanted the silence of their protest to be heard. I want to thank you all for listening to the episode this week. For my Patreon shout-out, that goes to Thomas as always. Once again, I do want to apologize for the delay in getting this episode out to you. Episodes should begin their regular cadence after this episode releases on Monday. Until next week, this has been Destination Disaster. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.